I'd like for a minute for us to start by you imagining a situation with me. Um, it'll be fairly unfathomable for you to imagine a situation like this, so I want you to entertain me for a minute. I'm going to describe a world, and I want you to try to put yourself in it and try to understand what this feels like. Imagine a world where there's a disease that when you get it, you have to isolate from everybody else. <laughs> I know. It's tough to imagine. Okay. I'll add something else. Imagine that when you get this disease and when you are around this disease, you have to distance yourself from people. We'll just call it something like social distancing. I know. Hard to understand. Um, maybe in this world, when you get this disease, you have to, if you are positive for it, you have to announce it to the people you've been around that you've come down with this disease. And obviously, little easier to understand than it would have been five years ago. Clearly, I'm talking about leprosy. You're right. Now, this morning, Luke 17, we're going to see a man and nine other men who have leprosy. And I think we have a unique place that maybe for the last 200 years, more than anyone else, we might understand how lepers feel on a smaller scale, being isolated and removed from people. I want to read a couple things from you before we get to Luke 17. And I want you to see that the Mosaic Law had some uh, provisions for lepers. This is how they were to live. In Leviticus 13, verse 45, it says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That was the life of a leper. You were unclean. Um, for good reason, there was distancing to keep other people from getting leprosy. But your life, nonetheless, as a leper, was to be outside the camp. Your only companionship would be with other lepers. And anytime people were to get close to you, you stand from a distance with your lip covered and you yell, unclean, unclean. However... There are provisions made for lepers if they were to be healed of their leprosy. In the next chapter, Leviticus 14, here's what they're to do. It says, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then if the case of the leprous disease is healed on the leprous person, the priest shall be commanded shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. What I wanted to point out merely from that is I want you to understand the role of the priest in that. The priest is merely like a referee who walks out in the black and white striped jersey and he just makes a call. He doesn't do anything to actually enact any cleansing or healing of leprosy. He walks out, blows the whistle, and says they're either clean or they're not. And if they are, then they perform the rituals and they re-enter back into society. And if they're not, they go back outside the camp. That is the way in which lepers are to live in the time that we're dropping in 2,000 years ago. And so if you would with me, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. And as you're finding your way to verse 11, I want to do something because I don't think we've done it for a couple weeks, and I think it would be helpful for our understanding of this text. I want us to scoot out a little bit and to see what we've been talking about in the last month or so. Where are we in the book of Luke? We're obviously in chapter 17, and if you can see the totality of the book of Luke, you know that we're getting to the end. So already, we're starting to be flagged that the end of Jesus' life is coming. Historically, the story that we're about to look at comes after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. 
And for some of us, that should throw up a flag that we're actually getting closer to Jesus' death than maybe we had even thought. That Jesus probably has a couple of weeks left to live. And so stakes are high, intensity's high. Specifically last week, Austin preached on Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, this parable that Jesus is telling to the Pharisees about a man who loves money who ends up in hell. And what he's telling the Pharisees is in the same way that they love money, don't love God, in that same very way, that's where they will end up unless something changes. And we didn't preach on this because we're going to the text we're talking about this morning, but it's important for us to look at the beginning of chapter 17. And in the beginning of chapter 17, Jesus switches from talking to the Pharisees, and in verse 3, he's talking to his own disciples. And he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, but if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So here's what's happening before our story is he just tells the Pharisees, you don't have it. You don't have saving faith. And then the disciples say, please, can you increase our faith? And he says, if you had faith even like a grain of mustard seed, you could get this tree to uproot itself and walk the plank into the ocean. And then, after our text, we see teaching in verse 20 about the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching that he will return one day after he rises, and the kingdom of God will be brought fully inaugurated into the earth. A lot of teaching. It's Jesus teaching over and over and over. And then you have our text, which isn't teaching. It's not him talking to anybody about anything. It's a story. It's a historical narrative of Jesus doing something. Now, if I was you, and what I'm asking is why did Luke decide to put this story in the middle of a long list of teaching? when it would have made plenty of sense for him to just keep talking about Jesus' teaching. But Luke chose for a specific reason to put this story in the middle of this teaching. So why did he do it? I think we're going to see the answer later on. So what we're going to do is we're going to put a pin in it. And I think this might be a valid time to explain how the morning will look. I want to introduce my imaginary pin board over here. I think that this story makes almost no sense until we get to the last verse of it. I think all that happens in this story is that we start to see how Jesus responded, interacted with, his, the, with these lepers, but it just puts up new questions. Why did Luke put this here? Why did he put this here? And none of it makes sense until the last verse. So all we're going to do this morning is we're going to read the text, we're going to come up with questions, we're going to pin them to this board, not address them, be entirely unhelpful, and then when we're done with everything, we're going to go back through and see if the last verse answers for us some of the crucial questions from this text. Does that make sense? Okay. So our first one on the board is, why would Luke put this text in the middle of a grand scheme of Jesus' teaching for chapters on end? I'm not going to answer it right now because I don't want to be helpful. All right, let's get into the text. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. These lepers, there's 10 of them, exhibit incredible faith. Here's why I say they exhibit credible faith, incredible faith. Here's one reason. They say Jesus. They know who they're talking to. The second thing is they say master. Now, why would they say master? Maybe they've heard about Jesus. Maybe they were just hopeless. 
But they cry out to Jesus, Master, saying in a step of faith, saying clearly this man has the ability to heal my leprosy. But that's still not the most amazing statement of faith in this cry. The next, I think, is amazing. Have mercy on us. What would you and I do if we had leprosy for years on end with our group of lepers and Jesus comes by? We would probably explain our story. This is how long I've had it. This is how I've been treated. It's about time, Jesus. Please help me. But all they cry out is, please, would you have mercy on us? Their cry is, please, Jesus, can we have the thing that we don't deserve? We're looking at you. We don't deserve it. Would you give us mercy? Still, though, we have not yet reached the pinnacle of what I would say would be the faithfulness of the ten lepers. When Jesus saw them, he said to them, and I'm in verse 14, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And as they went, they were cleansed. As they went, they were cleansed. We read the gospel stories a lot, so we don't get all that excited about Jesus healing people anymore. But these men who have been plagued by leprosy are walking to the priest and they're cleansed of their leprosy. What I think is far more faithful is these lepers have to turn and head back to the priest when they're not yet healed yet. If you remember, the priests are just referees. All they're going to do is walk out and say, nope. They're still lepers. Send them back to the camp. And yet Jesus tells them that they have to go. What these lepers have to do, what they're forced to do, is to act before they can see anything. Before they're healed, they are forced to go and trust that Jesus is going to take care of them as they're obedient to him. So they turn. They head back to the priests. And as they're on their way, faithfully step after step, saying, I don't even know why I'm walking back here right now, they're healed. And the leprosy is gone. These lepers have real, genuine faith. Right? Well, in the spirit of being unhelpful, let's pin it to the board. Do the lepers have real, genuine faith? I think we will figure it out later, but I don't think we figure it out yet. If you notice something up to this point is that the lepers are indistinguishable from one another. They're like one conglomerate mega-leper in this story so far. Here's what's happening. Look, and here's why I say it. He was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance And lifted up their voice, presumably together, Jesus have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to priests, all of you. And as they went, they were cleansed. It's the, you don't get distinguishments between the lepers. All you see is that there's ten of them, they cry out, they go together, they heal together. They are the exact same in every way in this story, and I believe that Luke wants to make it that way intentionally. And as things go, they were all the same until they were different. And things become different. Starting in verse 15. So they all go, they're all healed, and then it says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. So one turns back, he gets healed, and when he sees that he's healed, he turns back, praises God with a loud voice, falls at Jesus' feet. Now, why would I say that things get different here? If you just glance quickly to verse 17, when Jesus answers him, he says, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus is saying not a single other person came back except for this one. And if you look at the response of the one, it's pretty incredible. It might be the most Christian response to ever be done. He is healed, he turns back, he praises God with a loud voice, and falls at Jesus' feet. 
This is what we do as Christians, the high lows. Our praise goes high, our posture goes low. We sing loudly to God for his mercy, and then we bow at his feet because we are still unworthy servants that just want to follow him and honor him. That's why after the sermon, we're going to sing two songs. His mercy is more, where we sing loudly and proclaim his mercy and its goodness. And then, Jesus, we love you. Our affections, our devotions laid out on the feet of Jesus. That's the model of a Christian. The one leper turns when everyone else kept going, wherever they went, turns back, praises God loudly, and bows at Jesus' feet. So the question that I have is why is this one leper different from the other nine lepers? And if you can imagine what I'm going to do with that question, I'm going to put it on our board, put a pin in it, we'll come back to it. So, so far we've asked why would Luke put this story here? We've asked why uh, were the ten lepers legitimate in their faith and why was the one different than the ten? Here's why we're doing the pin board is because all of this story would make complete sense if it wasn't for verse 17, or sorry, the end of verse 16. Everything would make total and complete sense except for the end of verse 16. Because everything makes sense up to this point. He, lepers come, he healed them, one came back, and then Luke finds it necessary to put a random piece of information that seems to not help us in any way. So he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Now he was a Samaritan. Seems to just kind of drop in the middle of the story, confuse everything, and ask why on earth does that matter at all, that he was a Samaritan? Why on earth would Luke decide to tell us now that this leper who was just healed comes back and, oh, also, he was a Samaritan? Well, probably be helpful for us to understand what the big deal about a Samaritan is. Here's a few things that we need to know about the Samaritans in order for us to understand why this is important. So you see, the Jews had a, a negative relationship with Gentiles. Gentiles was anyone that wasn't Jewish. That was a big demographic of people that they had an issue with. And the reason for that is partly because they weren't the chosen people of God. The other part would be because the Gentiles often were dragging the Jews into paganism or trying to overtake them. And so there's just a natural, um, I would say, sin level of discrimination towards other people. And then also just a massive difference between them. And you can see this in different things like the Jews called the Gentiles dogs and things like that. Now, the Jews and the Gentiles did not get along. And the Gentiles were just not Jewish. The big deal with the Samaritan is that Samaritans weren't just not Jewish. They were anti-Jewish. They were explicitly against the Jews. When the northern tribe of Israel was taken into captivity in the Old Testament, there were some Israelites that were left behind and they just intermarried and started to interweave with the Assyrian Empire that had stayed there. And these Jews in the land of Samaria slowly began to mix in pagan religions and create their own rendition of being an Israelite, what we would call the Samaritans. In the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is trying to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, there's two enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, and they are rulers in the area of Samaria. The people that were the greatest enemies of the Israelites coming back to the promised land, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall, rebuilding their society, was the Samaritans. And so if you're a Jew, for bad reasons and good reasons, you hate 
the Samaritans. They had their own five book. They had their own edition of the Pentateuch. They had their own temple. They claimed that they were right, the Jews were wrong, and that they were claiming to be the same thing as the Jews. So why would Luke tell us that now he was a Samaritan? I'm not even going to put a pin in this one. Because I think what Luke is trying to beg us to do, and what he's trying to beg you to do and me to do, is lean in. Because the original readers of this text would have read Luke 17, gotten to the end of verse 16, and held their breath. Because yes, this Samaritan, he was a leper and he was healed. That was a problem. He couldn't come near them. But now he's healed and he runs to them. And as he gets closer, they start to see this man's a Samaritan. He has a far bigger problem than a leprous disease. His heritage, his ethnicity, his race puts him in danger in front of these Jewish men because there is nothing more opposite than a Samaritan bowing before a Jewish rabbi and his Jewish disciples. It should beg us to lean in and ask the question, what is Jesus going to do with a Samaritan? What's he going to do with a Samaritan? Which leads us to our last verse. And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. He sends the Samaritan home. And he says, your faith has made you well. Now it's pretty incredible in this short span of seven verses how Luke paints a picture of this Samaritan leper. You see, if I had to take a guess... And what I believe Luke is doing in this text, I believe that he's showing us the things in our life that really make us different or similar. So here's what I mean by that. The story starts, and there is a group of indistinguishably similar lepers who are doing everything together. Not only that, but the leper that we know is a Samaritan leper, which means he's the exact same as all these other lepers, and... He is completely different than this Jewish rabbi Jesus, his Jewish disciples, and likely the Jewish crowds around him. Completely different. And a mere seven verses later, at the end of our story, this leper is completely different than all of the other lepers because of his faith, and in the exact same boat as the disciples bowing at Jesus' feet. You see how one act, one thing that he did, changed him from being the exact same as them to the exact same as him, as them. He's trying to paint a picture of what actually makes you different, what actually makes you the same. It's pretty beautiful. Now, some of you might be like, sweet, he's done. We're going to pray it out, shortest sermon that we've had at City Light. But I know that there's many of us that are like, well, don't, don't leave this. A lot of unanswered questions. So there's our text. I hope we understand it. And I think the last verse gives us an idea to be able to answer everything else that's happening here. So here's what I want to do. I want to take pins off the board, and I want us to look at some of these questions. The first one, I'm going to take the middle two off of, was the faith of the ten lepers genuine? And what was so different about the one leper? Take a look with me at the beginning of the story. Here's what we know about them. In verse 13, All the lepers lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They were all healed. And in verse 15, then when one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. 
it's pretty interesting. It says that he fell at Jesus' feet, giving him, Jesus, thanks. Do you know this is one of the only times in the book of Luke that somebody bows at Jesus' feet and specifically thanks him as though he were God? Pretty different when we look at it, how the, two, the different sets of lepers address Jesus. The nine lepers call Jesus master. You have authority to fix my problem. I trust that I know it to be true. But when they got healed, all that Jesus ever was was the one who could fix their problems. There was no need to go back. This one leper saw that Jesus himself was God. So they came to give him thanks, praising God with a loud voice. And if he's God, then whether or not he heals you or not, he's always worthy to come back to. He said, I don't just need a referee to call me good so I can go back into town. I need to go back to the man who made me clean. This is an illustration I've used before with Salt Company, um, but I think it accurately illustrates what's happening here. I believe what the nine lepers believed in was an imaginary friend of Jesus called Jesus Crutch. Jesus Crutch is the guy that you lean on when you're struggling and low or hurting or sick, but he's not Jesus Christ. What do you do with a crutch when you get better? You put it in the closet or you lose it. In the exact same way, what these lepers believed about Jesus was that he was powerful enough to fix their circumstance, but once they were better, he went in the closet or they lost him. I'm worried that there's dozens and dozens and dozens of people here this morning that believe in Jesus' crutch. And I can only say that because that was my life, for, for much of my life, that is what I claimed to be, a Christian, but the only time that I really prayed or cared about my relationship with Jesus was when my grandpa got sick, my dog got sick, or my grandma got cancer, or somebody else was sick, or there was problems, or I was overwhelmed in life, and then I'd run to Jesus, like I'm all in, but the second that life gets better, I'm gone. Who's Jesus? I don't remember. Jesus' crutch is not what Jesus came to be in your life. And if you live your life practically, functionally, in a way where all that Jesus is for you is a crutch, then you don't know the real Jesus. He's not a crutch. He's the Christ. And if he's the Christ, the Almighty, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, then regardless of whether your situation is good or bad, overwhelming, underwhelming, regardless, it means that I run back to the Christ. You see how very different the one leper is from the nine? And here might be the most incredible difference between the nine and the one. In the verse, it says that as they were going, they were cleansed. And then it says, as the one saw that he was healed, he turned back. Cleansed and healed. Those are two different words in the Greek. But in the final verse, because all of the lepers experienced the cleansing, the healing, their leprosy was gone. Uh, Assumably so, they went back to the priest and they were cleansed. But there's only one word that's given explicitly to the one leper that came back. In verse 19, it says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Other translations, the NASB, the CSB, would translate this as your faith has saved you. The word rooted in a salvific sense. The nine lepers were healed of leprosy. And they likely went on to live really normal and happy lives, back with their families, whatever it was, we don't know, it doesn't tell us. 
But unless something changed and they came back to Jesus some other time, which we have no evidence of, then they went to hell. But at least they didn't have a leprosy anymore. Friends, there's a far greater problem than COVID. There's a far greater problem than our worldly troubles, sicknesses. And I'm not saying that those things are insignificant, but I'm saying what this one leper tells us is that Jesus fixed his real problem. Jesus fixed his sin problem. Jesus looked at him and said, your faith has saved you, has made you well. Nine lepers got healed, but only one got saved. My hope is that we wouldn't be a people that just come in for the healing, that just come in for the restoration, but come in primarily for the salvation that Jesus provides, that we anchor ourselves in the greatest problem that Jesus fixed, is that when he died on the cross, he paid for your sins so that you could have salvation. That is the greatest difference between the nine lepers and the one. So if that's what made them different, I want to address the kind of half pin that I put on the end. And I want to talk about now that they're different, we still have this big problem that Luke decided to drop the whole now he was a Samaritan thing in the middle of the text. I want to figure out what was that about. And I think what that was about is that this was not only trying to explain what made that leper different, but I believe it also is trying to explain what made this Samaritan now the same as these Jewish people? I think that what this does is it puts Jewish ethnocentrism in a blender. It annihilates it. Because what Jesus is saying is even a Samaritan is now like you in faith in me. I'm not saying that it destroys all the hostility between them. I'm not saying that they were instantly just better, but what Jesus is trying to say is that faith in him transcends ethnic, racial backgrounds, prejudices. It should pierce through our prejudices. The disciples could now look at a Samaritan and see that he was unified to Christ just as they were. That is a more significant thing that they have in common than this Samaritan even has with his non-believing family members. In the same way for you, you have more in common with your church than you do with your non-believing family members. That doesn't, don't hear me wrong, that I'm saying that that means you necessarily enjoy spending more time with the people here, or that you have more fun with the people here, or that you're relationally closer with the people here. I'm saying the deepest and core thing about you, if you are a Christian, the most significant thing about you is the same as the most significant thing about the other Christians in this room. This is why we talk about church membership. That's why it's called family members. You're members of one body. And in the same way, the church members in this room, the other members around you are members of one body. We have something relationally more significant than you even have with your non-believing family. You have more significantly in common with the rice farmer in northern Vietnam that believes in Jesus than you do with your non-believing family. What that means is that means it should pierce through our prejudices. The groups of people that you are most uncomfortable with, that you dislike the most, the racial prejudices that we have, the gospel should pierce through them because a faith in Jesus transcends all of those boundaries. It doesn't automatically fix your problems, but it transcends all of those boundaries. So, did you vote for Donald Trump? And you can't imagine how somebody could have voted for Joe Biden and you don't ever want to have dinner with that person. 
Did you vote for Joe Biden? Same thing. Can't imagine how anyone could ever vote for Donald Trump, and you cannot possibly imagine fellowshipping with that person. Do you hate wearing masks and hate when people try to push them on you? Do you love wearing masks? I think everyone needs to and hate when people don't. I'm not trying to say any of those things are necessarily invalid. I'm not invalidating opinions. Opinions are good. But I'm saying we need to understand that a faith in Jesus supernaturally transcends all of those and is designed to unify us. That's the point of now he was a Samaritan. Because if you were to talk to those disciples about the one person, the one guy, that they're like, nope, it would be a Samaritan. And as the Samaritan comes and has faith in Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. In the same way he did with the disciples. I'm saying this story should pierce through your prejudices. It should radically change the way that you view other believers and the way that you act around other believers and fellowship with one another that we pierce through our prejudices and would say, there's something significant about you that is the same as me that's far more important than anything else. That's why it says, now he was a Samaritan. Now, the last pin that we have on the board that I want to take out is the overarching, we ask the big question of why on earth then would Luke put this text in the middle, in the grand scheme of Jesus at the end of his life teaching these things. I'm going to take a swing why I think. Here is what I think. He tells the Pharisees, faith, you don't have it. You need to change. The disciples are like, Lord, increase our faith. And he says, you have the faith of a mustard seed. Or if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could have this tree be uprooted and move. The question that's being begged in this teaching is, if the disciples don't have it, and the Pharisees don't have it, who's got the faith? And Luke's trying to open our eyes and his reader's eyes and say, the Samaritan had the faith. Yes, even the Samaritan. In a few chapters, we'll see Luke 19 where Jesus tells Zacchaeus that he came to seek and save the lost. That lost extends to all kinds of people, even the Samaritan. The next things about the kingdom of God, what will the kingdom of God consist of? I can tell you one person that will be there. The Samaritan. Yes, even the Samaritan. I want to remind you, friends, that our story is not, any, not all that different from the Samaritans. He was plagued with leprosy that distanced him from all of the world. You and I were the exact same as the world, dead in our trespasses and sins, plagued by sin in a way that distanced us from the only one that could fix the problem, God himself. And God came through Jesus, and just like he did with that Samaritan leper, Jesus made us well, and when we bowed our feet to him, he saved us and brought us salvation. The same words that he said to the Samaritan leper are the same words that he says to you. If you have trusted in Jesus, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. For the person that has not believed in Jesus in this room, I want to close by giving you a little illustration or story that I think is so um, accurate to this text. I was listening to a podcast by a pastor whose name uh, was Matt McCullough, and he was talking about how he was doing a Bible study. And there was a guy who started coming to his Bible study who had just gotten out of jail and was involved in really awful things, but he was more kind of the crutch route. He was like, I think a Bible study is going to turn my life around, help me get right. So he's going to come to Bible study. And he was coming for a while, and they were going through the Gospels. And one day in Bible study, they're reading through just another story in the life of Jesus, and this guy stops, and he looks at him, and he says, 
the more that I read the Bible, the more I think that a guy, that Jesus might actually want a guy like me to be a Christian. And the pastor who was leading the study tear, started to tear up, and he's like, you got it exactly right. That's exactly right. That's exactly what Luke's trying to say, is that regardless of where you are, if you have not trusted in Jesus as the Christ, then I hope this story echoes to you that Jesus wants a guy or a girl exactly like you to be a Christian. 